Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey, this is Dr. Santosh, your friendly neighborhood pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher, totally not reading about the Kardashians. It's terrible, man. It just downloads into your brain. I just, I can't. Our audience I, deserves better. Yeah, I know. I know. Oh, we could actually, <laughs> if we ever talk to a plastic surgeon, we could actually like, you know, use Kardashians as context. Stop it. No, <laughs> I'm just trying to make it medical. Man. Fair enough. Well, that said, I figured this season, in addition to our favorite journal clubs and 80 plagues, we've also been trying to dig into some of the foundations and basics of medicine. And so I thought today it might be fun to take it back to the old school because I'm an old fool who's so cool. Take if you back, want to get no, down, no. let me show you the way. <laughs> Whoop, there it is. Let me hear you say. No? Nobody? Okay. There then. it is. Oh, no. <laughs> <Just> me. <laughs> oh, I forgot to whoop. I'm so, I, I jumped straight to the there it is. I thought you were going to whoop. I'm, so, I'm sorry. Uh, so so this, this week, whoop. we're going to start a new mini series where we talk about the history of residency and how we got to where we are now. And whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, the past is fascinating uh, because, Santosh, do you know about the Big Four? So well, Johns Hopkins okay. was the very first right, medical residency four. program. There were other medical schools, although not many in the United States, but specifically a residency. And pathologist and medical fundraiser, William Henry Welch, 
who was a larger-than-life personality, a bachelor whose favorite pastime was a week of swimming, carnival rides, and five dessert dinners in Atlantic City, followed by three-course brunches. Then, Surgeon William Stewart Halstead, the absent-minded drug-fueled professor, and, you know, I'm sure you've heard of a bunch of Halstead's techniques, but uh, we've got some fun stories about him. Internist William Osler. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Osler, who's the father of internal medicine, uh, basically, or at least of yeah, the Os- teaching Osler's methods notes, now. You know, that we talked about. And in- gynecologist Howard Kelly, snake collector and evangelical saver of souls. Okay. You can't, that's, there's no medicine in there at all, snake collector. Where, I said gynecologist. <laughs> okay, okay, so these are big for, these are kind of like the the pillars of medical residency, having a program on the job type of training for people who had finished medical school, that's an older concept than the United States. Correct. But largely before that, and as I said, I'll have to look into outside the country a little bit more, but most medical students were taught in for-profit trade schools. And then after two to three years of attending lectures by part-time teachers they could apprentice themselves to older doctors or just hang out a shingle and start practicing even if they oh, had never oh laid hands on a patient prior to that. So what there was was a lot of apprenticeship and quackery. <laughs> quackery so, of the fabulist I mean, sort. This is an old school way of passing on knowledge, right? It's not – there's history behind this. You know, this is the same thing as – if you were a blacksmith or if you were a scribe, any number of other professions passed on their knowledge in this way by first finding an apprentice, someone who is worthy, and then, you know, just one master passing on their techniques to an apprentice. The difference being that we know now uh, that aggregate knowledge, if you test something over and over is much more valuable than just one single person saying, this is how I do things here. Now you do it the way I, I teach you to do it. Yeah, what? that's what fellowship is for. <laughs> Don't do that. It's awful. <laughs> Terrible. No, no, no. That's not- It is important more and more that we found that we actually – we bring together many people's knowledge. We test our beliefs against, you know, a larger framework and more patients, better controls in our experiments. And this actually leads us to better medicine. This was the beginnings of evidence base. And before we start talking about apprenticeships and medical education and residency, do you remember taking the Hippocratic Oath, Santosh? I did. And I think, Josh, you and I at our university, we took a modified or a new oath because the old one, as cool as it is, has some kind of weird caveats that no longer apply in this day and age. Why don't we, I tell you the original oath and then we can uh, decide, I swear, by Apollo physician, by Asclepius by Hygieia, by Panacea, by Panacea, and by all the gods and goddesses, making them my witness that I will carry out, according to my ability and judgment, this oath and indenture, to hold my teacher in this art equal to my own parents, to make him my partner in my livelihood, when he is in need of money to share mine, 
to consider his family as my own brothers and teach them this art without fee or indenture, to impart precept, oral instruction, and all others to my own sons, the sons of my teachers, and indentured pupils who have taken this oath, but nobody else. That's the first part. Then we get into what you're actually allowed to do and not do with it. So, uh... First off, we're not really swearing to the Greek pantheon anymore. You know, this was a time when... <laughs> that's true. There, there, well, what I was going to say is there was certainly a time in our history when these natural forces and what we learned, and healing arts especially, were tied with a pantheon or a recent god or an old god, you know, everything that we did, whether it was artistry or science. So for instance, you know, Society of Pythagoras, they didn't see a difference really between the divine and the natural world. Um, It's just that the natural world were kind of expressions of you know the what about the this hold my teacher equal to my own parents in, in history and when he is in need of money to share mine so, with him sounds like a student faculty or an alumni association <laughs> even back in ancient greece <laughs> well i mean i don't yeah <laughs> so let's look at the next part of the oath uh so we really don't we don't include most of that that all gets condensed down to i swear by the moon and the stars up above I'll be there as we move from boys <laughs> to men. I mean, you know, you just you're you're not too far off. You're just about ninety six degrees off or so. No <laughs> shit, I screwed up the pun. Ninety eight degrees. How many degrees was it in the boy band? Yeah. You want to try that again? No, 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 no. Keep it. <laughs> Keep it all. Um, let's. Let's Wait, I have to Google to how many of- degrees it was. It was 98. Josh, it was 98 degrees. You, you were only off by 98 degrees. I'm glad I- that we could finally be in sync on this issue. Oh, you son of a bitch. So let's look at the next part of the oath. I will meant to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injury mm-hmm. and wrongdoing. Well, I mean, this is, this is really important. Um, this is the do no harm bit. This is, I know the stuff that's going to either harm or heal based on the dose, right? The, the poison is in the dose. Um, and I, I know how the body works. And I promise not to use this knowledge to hurt somebody Neither else. will I administer really a poison to anybody when asked to do so, nor will I suggest such a course. Similarly, mm-hmm. I will not give a woman a pessary to cause abortion but I will keep pure and holy both my life and art. I will not use the knife, not even verily on sufferers from stone or those who labor under the stone, but I will give place to such <laughs> as our craftsmen therein. So whew, there's a lot, there's a lot going on mm-hmm. in that part. Yeah, we can, we can break it down. The first bit is nowadays very politically charged, right? Um, uh, neither will I administer a poison to anybody when asked to do so or suggest a course, uh, no euthanasia. That's what they said originally. You know, I'm holding life sacred. Even if you want to die, I'm not going to help you die. Very, very controversial. Yeah, and it does get age. mixed up with other fields as well. So, and then again, just in case, you know, euthanasia right. wasn't a hot enough topic. Hippocrates is like, hey guys, <laughs> hot take on women's yeah. health care. Not give... Yeah, I will not give a woman a pessary uh, to cause an abortion. Uh, it was in there that the ancient Greeks and those who studied under Hippocrates 
they considered the unborn child also to be quite sacred and they didn't perform abortions if they took this Hippocratic oath. Again, now, lots of controversy. Maybe you're going to slip up on those first two. But Asclepius Hygieia Panacea and Apollo help you if you yeah. pick a knife and use it on those who labor under the stone. <laughs> so, by the way, this isn't like... I won't pick up a knife. No, no not it's even to hack out, hack rubble out that's buried people under who people. are buried under rubble. That's not what this means. <laughs> yeah, literally. What under the stone? In this case, they mean nephrolithiasis. They mean a kidney stone. And the reason leave surgery to the barber surgeons and and keep to your herbs and diagnose. Right. So there was a very clear line in ancient Greece and even for a long time afterwards that physicians used physic or pharmaceuticals. We used medication. We did not cut. And if you needed someone to sever a gangrenous limb or if you needed someone to take out a bladder stone or a kidney stone or a gallbladder stone because it was causing that much pain and so horrific, you would call either a butcher or a barber. And those would be the people who were skilled in using a knife. And you were told that that's not your trade. You don't know how to do that. And I'm not teaching you how to do that. When you take this oath. Yeah, now barbers just get to cut hair. Kind of feels like a demotion. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? I mean, you know, ancient times coming all the way through your favorite Victorian era, Josh, all the way up to the 1900s. That, there was that old barber pole. <laughs> you had the barber pole going around, red and white, which is the blood and bandages coming down. This is the place where you cut. And... You know, still to this day, people use the barber pole, but it's true that privilege of cutting was taken away from barbers and it was pulled into the arena of medicine. You can cut, but only the face and only a little bit. And just to make it silky smooth. (laughs) All right, let's look at the last part and then we'll talk about residents. Into whatsoever houses I enter, I enter to help the sick and will abstain from all intentional wrongdoing and harm, especially from abusing the bodies of man or woman, bond or free. And whatsoever I shall see or hear in the course of my profession, as well as outside my profession, in my interactions with men, if it be what should not be published abroad, I will never divulge, holding such things to be holy secrets. Now, if I carry this, carry out this oath and break it not, May I gain forever reputation among all men for my life and my art. But if I break it and forswear myself, may the gods punish me and the opposite befall my every days. The most important part of this is the creation of doctor-patient confidentiality. (laughs) There's a lot lot to digest in this sense. I'm going to help you. I don't care if you're a guy, if you're a gal. In this particular phrasing that they put in, if you are a free person or if you're a slave, or a servant, um, and then you tell me something, and I will take it to my grave. I, I will not exactly. say anything. And you know that that's still holds true today in the form here in the United States in the form of HIPAA. Again, one of the reasons that people are willing to tell us all the things we need to ask, the very personal questions we have to ask in the course of getting a good history, because this has been established way way back in the day. I think even more so than that, Josh, you know, they say, oh, you know, if I break this, you know, may the opposite befall me and all this kind of stuff. And this day and age, 
that means the state's going to take your license and your money. So <laughs> definitely for sure, if you forswear yourself, the opposite will befall you. Certainly in one means or another. Uh, but let's go back to our four houses of medical Hogwarts. Oh man, I would have loved to have seen that movie. We're going to focus first on Halstead. So he's a surgeon, but before I go into his whole backstory, what house would you just sort him into with what little you happen uh, to know? This guy. Where, where was, do you think he lands? This one was the, he was kind of vanilla, right? Not that bad. Sure. Let's see where you're going with this. <laughs> What's mean, the they're, vanilla they're the Hogwarts house? They're the, hey, I'm going to help everybody. It's a, it's all good kind of house. That's Hufflepuff. So when William Henry Halstead mm-hmm. first, or William Halstead first went to medical school, most surgeons of the day were still operating in street clothes with bare hands and majors had a rate of a coin toss. Yeah. Yeah. It's a 50, 50 chance of getting out of there. Alive. Okay. Forget about, forget about. Yeah. Okay. You know, like, no, oh, that, that's true. No, you know what? You're absolutely right. That's true. You know, yeah. 50% died right then and there. Of the remaining 50%, you're not protected from infections because remember, bare hands. In fact, Joseph Lister, uh, him who inspired Listerine, had recently... Uh, <laughs> and and had the bacteria Listeria. He had bacteria. recently started mm-hmm. to introduce the idea of some carbolic dips and sprays that were, you know, toxic. But hand washing was discouraged because it was thought it would force germs into crevices in the skin. Oh, oh, don't wash your hands. Don't you know you're going to have soggy germ corpses everywhere? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just on the opposite side of this, you know, Ignaz Samuel uh, you know, 1800s all the way up to 1865 encouraged hand washing, you know, and emphasized it so much with so much anger and fervor and that he was yelled at by his colleagues and went insane trying to get people to wash their hands. No, no, no. I love this guy, Ignaz Samuel Yeah, yeah. He was the opposite of that. This mm-hmm. guy, Ignaz Samuel 1865 along with Dr. Halstead, who overlapped with the end of uh, Samuel Weiss's life, these guys got sepsis, right? Due to hospital, you know, anything. You got hand washing to reduce the mortality to below So let's talk 1%. a little more about Halstead's career and where he went from there. So he originally joined New York Hospital in 1877, mm-hmm. And one of the first things he invented there was the hospital chart, which tracks the patient's temperature, pulse, and respiration. He's like, I am sick of having to like get this every single day and keep it memorized. I'm just going to start writing it so I can measure trends. Did he also uh, invent <laughs> um, shitty, shitty, kind of? Handwriting? <laughs> we'll get there. Oh, we'll get there. Just kidding. <laughs> I just. No, uh, I thought it would be one of the most wonderful kind of, you know, stories if he always was like, I'm going to make this thing called a chart so people can chart each other and, you know, follow along with the patient, even if a new doctor comes in. But I'm going to write in this thing so crappy that you can't understand it anyway. I picture Thus one of the earliest nurses picking his, it up, trying you know, to decipher it and shouting out, hey, who charted? Ah, <laughs> uh, so, and then she promptly in, this, get in New York Hospital is where he met Welch, 
And that would, <laughs> would eventually recruit him to be one of the founders of Johns Hopkins. Uh, he leaves for about two years to study in Europe, where he really zeroes in on the scientific method oh, or cool. evidence-based medicine. And here's where it starts getting crazy. In 1881, and when he was only 29, mm -hmm. his sister had a severe postpartum hemorrhage. Uh, he started to operate on her because nobody else felt like they could actually save her. They were all prepared to write her off. So Halstead stopped. Well, I mean, surgery was a pretty butcherous affair back in the day. But Aww. Halstead stopped the bleeding, but the loss was so great, he plunged a syringe into his own arm and gave her a direct sure, transfusion. Sure. One of the first in the U.S. Are you kidding? So he just... Yeah, like filling up a gas tank. He went arm? Yeah, she recovered. And in fact, and, and never mind all like the complications and concerns with you know, operating on a family member, which he didn't, because only a year later, he performed the very first cholecystectomy in the United States on his mother on the, ki on the kitchen table at 2 a.m. And he took seven gallstones out of that woman. So this is part, and I, I don't know if you guys remember it from the, the oath. Uh, Josh, I actually don't know if we read it off of this version of the oath. He cut those who labored under the stone. <laughs> he was a surgeon. Fine. This was the 1900s. This wasn't like 600 BC. No, no. More importantly, we, I think you and I took an oath that, you know, we will not treat ourselves nor our kith or kin, which is part of the new oath. So, you know, this is, this is something, you know, we were in that middle era when the, the oaths were kind of transitioning. And we know not to do this in nowadays because we can't be objective uh, in treating our own kith and kin. And we do crazy ass things like sucking our own blood out and trying to plunge it into our sister's arm. And, you know, performing cholecystectomies on our mothers at 2 a.m. on the kitchen table. <laughs> That's so wild. And, and she survived too. Oh. The man was a darn good surgeon. Yeah, yeah. This is a little aggressive. I think maybe I was wrong to Hufflepuff this guy. Okay, Slytherin is, you know, kind of get... Evil? The, the, what? Well, no, no, get it. What? <laughs> Slytherin, it's just get it done no matter how. You know, he's very practical, just cut to the quick. And and sometimes sneakiness is okay and it's fine. Ravenclaw is I want to know no matter what. It's the pursuit of knowledge. And Gryffindor is I'm going to save you. I don't care what I have to do. I'm going to be the hero. Maybe he is Gryffindor. Because Gryffindor was a little, like, kind of jock asshole-y too, right? Okay. Because Harry's dad was Gryffindor, and he was kind of a jock asshole. All right, so let's let's see. We're going to have a lot of fun with these comparisons over the course of this series, folks. So if you're familiar <laughs> with uh, the different founders of Johns Hopkins, go ahead and send us what you think their medical Hogwarts house would be. <laughs> I, I'm interested to find out. Um, so... That's 1881 and 1882. Mm -hmm. so a little bit further. 1884, yeah. based on oh, yeah. a report, a new report describing the anesthetic power of cocaine uh, as an eye drop, Halstead, yeah, like, Wait, you know, like we use like lidocaine <laughs> or lidocaine drops. And back in the day, they used cocaine drops. Oh. Halstead, his students shady? and fellow physicians... <laughs> experimented on each other as you do in med school and training and demonstrated cocaine could produce safe and effective local anesthesia when applied topically and when injected and 
and you know that Halstead oh, was, you know, very, very safe because he was a big fan of the scientific method. So he would often inject himself with the drug to test it before using it on his patients during surgeries. <laughs> one for you, one for me. I, oh, <laughs> I don't know if I agree. Brilliant with you surgeon, oh, crippling okay. cocaine addiction. Oh, dealt with this oh, addiction for about five though, years, keeping it mostly, <laughs> or so he thought, but not completely hidden. In fact, okay. he wrote an incoherent, rambling okay. article in 1885 in the New York Medical Journal. And I know you're wondering what's incoherent and rambling yeah. for 1885. Without, I'm just going to read you <laughs> one sentence. I'm not going to give you the whole article. Okay. Okay. <laughs> No, no, no. Of Neither course. indifferent yeah, as to which of how many possibilities may article. best explain, nor yet at a loss to comprehend why surgeons have and that so many, quite without discredit, could have exhibited scarcely any interest in what, as a local anesthetic, had been supposed, if not declared, by most, so very short of proof, especially to them, attractive. And still, I do not think that this circumstance or some sense of obligation to rescue fragmentary reputation for surgeons, rather than the belief that an opportunity existed for assisting others to act to an appreciable extent, induced me several months ago to write on the subject in hand that the greater part of a somewhat paper which poor health disinclined me to complete one sentence in a whole article Was and that then one sentence? his buddy harvey firestone said you know what pally old pally oh. i think you may have a touch of a cocaine problem and halstead <laughs> and halstead said what i'm not doing any cocaine and firestone <laughs> then arranged to have halstead abducted and put aboard a steamship <laughs> headed for Europe, inadvertently creating the very first detox cruise. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, I, I don't have an objection to what... I mean, did it work, at least? Well, he spent several years abroad in Paris and Austria learning even more surgical techniques and what, on cocaine? his ability... No, no, no. He detoxed over two and a half weeks locked on a cargo ship with no access to cocaine. Oh, you know, just, okay, alco okay. just alcohol. But upon his return to the States, he became addicted again. <laughs> Dude, what is about returning to the United States? That makes cocaine? you want to do the U.S.? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he was sent to Butler Sanatorium in Rhode Island, where they finally mm -hmm. cured his cocaine addiction okay. with morphine. Oh. So good news. <laughs> Yeah, that's I um let's call that good news. Why not? And at the discharge from this sanatorium with his newly budding mm -hmm. heroin addiction that had finally quote unquote cured him of his cocaine addiction, he was recruited by Welch to become the head of surgery at Johns Hopkins. Okay. Oh, but like still well, on cocaine though. Yes. And here's the thing. In 1889, oh. He's about a year out of the sanatorium. Okay. He implemented a program mm -hmm. at Johns Hopkins where training surgeons would be residents and actually live at the hospital. That's where the term resident comes from. Oh, and that's <laughs> and that's why we say, you know, when you're a right. resident, you reside you in house. You, you're you a house officer. Part of this gotcha, training, gotcha. in addition to living at the hospital, would be to perform a grueling number of hours in the hospital each week, averaging around 110 to 120. Well, this is a pretty high number for anybody, but there is some discussion about whether these hours were created by somebody high on cocaine who doesn't sleep. No. So, 
You don't Surgeons, say. <laughs> your whole lifestyle may allegedly be predicated <laughs> 110 uh, hours a yeah, week. Sounds like a lot. <laughs> what are the caps for residents these days? Yeah, do you do you know? Because I don't. Right now, we we tried here in California, and I think across the United States now. Before you and I got into residency, a little while before, there was a high profile death of a young resident and that caused outrage and we started limiting resident hours so that residents don't kill themselves who's you know (laughs) go figure and so when i went in um i had a 30 hour time limit per complete shift meaning that i could do 24 hours of seeing new patients At hour 24, I had to stop seeing brand new patients and I could only spend six hours in-house any further, just wrapping up my old work. And I could not pull a shift like that more than once every three days. And had to be allowed eight whole hours to rest after that kind of grueling work before they could make you do any kind of work again. Yeah, again, any kind of healthcare, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, and and we played with that a little bit for a little while over here. There were some test sites where we even tried to limit that to 16 hours straight um, with an extra eight hours to wrap up. So that brought up to 24. I think, Josh, right now, if you're a third year resident, you can pull a 24 hour, you can do an all nighter. Um, and you can stay that extra six hours. So I think 30 hours at a clip is a limit. Not long before we started, however, the limit, I believe, was 48 hours, <laughs> where you would be in the hospital for 48 hours straight admitting patients. Go home for I the night. I think you'd go uh, home like, for the night or something, and then you'd come back right, bright in the morning the next day but you wouldn't be quote unquote on call. Uh, plus minus shower, I don't know. And then, you know, you'd come back, you'd still be seeing patients the next day after that 40 hour shift, but you wouldn't be the admitting physician, meaning that you wouldn't be taking. Now I think they're down to about 80 hours a week. And one of the complaints is, you know, every generation complains about the succeeding one. So of course, we're all like, well, I mean, really, how much training can you possibly get? And these constant handoffs are bad. And I (laughs) suffered and they should, you know, the classics, Uh, but play free bird, right. (laughs) But for surgeons, that starts to infringe on these long surgeries, maybe you've never seen a heart transplant before, or, or sorry, I should say an open heart, or a kidney transplant or something like that. And if the surgery goes 12 hours, and you know, it cuts into you hit that 30 hour mark, you can't really scrub out in the middle of surgery, or you can't start a surgery and walk out in the middle. There are a lot of people who don't necessarily like these limited work hours. But the reasons vary from specialty to specialty. Uh, Now you if you complete your first year, that's your intern year. And then if you're going into certain specialties, you go straight into those kind of things like orthopedics or dermatology after you do one year of general medicine Mm -hmm. or general surgery. Otherwise, residencies vary from about three to five years, depending on the specialty. Would you say that's fair, Santo? Yeah, uh, pediatrics is three. Most surgical specialties are a little bit longer. They're like five. Neurology is somewhere in the middle. Uh, Internal medicine is three. Yep. But 1889, 
Johns Hopkins Housteads surgical program. You know, remember the cocaine fueled everyone should work those kind of hours. <laughs> His goal is forty eight hours straight. Bam, bam, bam. The program began with an internship of undefined length. Individuals <laughs> individuals advanced that. when Housted believed they were good and ready for the next level yeah. of training. <laughs> And you know he's sitting there like personally like you know looking at the intern's work and everything just like oh utter imagine lunatic. being judged by somebody wow. high on cocaine who is also <laughs> the single greatest surgeon you've ever likely met you know pros and cons uh, so once you finally finished this undefined internship you had finally a residency you were an assistant resident for 6 years Ooh. then after all that you spent Two years as a house. Yeah. Now, um, I will put one little caveat on here. I believe medical school, so residency, prior to residency, you'd earn your doctor of medicine. I believe that at this time, I'm not sure, you would actually enter into medical school straight out of high school so you wouldn't have the extra four years of like an undergraduate in something yes secondary go school to medical the way school. that the british system is now so so you wouldn't be sitting here going saying okay well there's four years that are kind of burned so you can kind of think of those four years being transplanted up a little bit ah surgical metaphor uh, so that you you know you'd actually start medical school believe it or not at age 18 which to me sounds scary as all hell. And then you'd get into your residency at the end of medical school by age, you know, 21. Isn't that how it works in India as well, though? Don't they go straight from secondary to medical school as well as the British? It is. It's actually most of the world. The United States is the exception. The British system of education, going from secondary school to a specialty school, uh, especially medical school, is kind of the norm rather than... Well... You know, everybody jokes about, oh, well, doctors have to train for 10, go to medical school for 10 years to be called Mr. Evil. Um, so this is kind of where, again, that started. Six years as a resident for surgery, uh, two years as an attending or, you know, chief resident. And again, all this is an internship until you're damn well ready to actually start the real residency. Now, this program helped to develop and create role models and teachers for the next generation of surgeons. Anybody who trained under these kind of conditions and survived, you knew was coming out well-prepared. And that includes uh, Harvey William Cushing and Walter Dandy, two of the founders of neurosurgery. Cushing and Dandy sounds like an old-timey folk yeah, band. It does. And also one of the founders of urology, Hugh Young. Oh, also remember how I said that everybody like barehanded? Oh, yeah, yeah. No surgical gloves. Although there was hand washing at this time. Well, again, that was thanks to Lister. So at least they were starting to wash hands by late in Osler's career. But thanks largely to how surgeons worldwide began wearing gloves during operations. Ooh, although I'm going to take a wild guess and say they weren't exactly well, fully stable. they didn't even exist as a concept initially. It came around after one of his nurses, his surgical nurses, Caroline Hampton, complains that the mercuric chloride she was supposed to wash with before every surgery gave her a rash. So, sure, yeah, it's uh, mercury. <laughs> now, I don't know the exact chronology yeah. of this, but the two were and eventually married her. At some point in this courtship process, he asked the Goodyear nice. Rubber Company to make two pairs of thin rubber gloves to protect her hands. And after seeing them on her, 
all of his surgical assistants were like, that is awesome. We want those and began to wear them during operations. Swear gloves made them more dexterous. And guess what? His mortality rate dropped. <laughs> Michelin or Goodyear? Goodyear. So he had been at Hopkins as a teacher for like seven or eight years before he finally convinced the board of trustees that he had completely and irrevocably kicked his cocaine <laughs> habit and he was a morphine man from life. Oh, that's way better. At least, at least maybe he won't be jumping down everybody's... Why aren't you still awake? <laughs> Eventually, he did pass away after getting several honorary professorships and you know, instituting a model of residency that still exists today because everybody who trained underneath him basically right. carried on that same attitude in their own programs. And you ended up with okay. you ended up with some very overworked but incredibly talented individuals. This was a little bit of attrition, right? So there's some survivorship bias here. I'm sure that there were a bunch of people who were really good and, and who would have made excellent surgeons, but they never had the opportunity to do anything with it because they were destroyed, you know, two days into their first shift. Now, before I tell you, we're going to come around to his eventual death, uh, which is a little bit poetic only in that it, it brings things around full circle. But do you want to revise which house you'll only have one more chance after this? Having heard his story, what house are you going to put him in? Okay. And then once you've heard the stories of sure. all the founders, we can resort. Because you can only use each house once. Right. You know what? This guy was, uh, he was pretty evil. He wasn't quirky. He was just like, no, get it done, work. Just, I don't care what you have to do. You, you just achieve the goal, which is very, very Slytherin. Um, you know, kind of practicality there. He wasn't deceitful the way that Slytherin is, but he, he was definitely cut through all the bullshit. Just get your stuff done. And if you make it to the end, you'll be amazing. Uh, so I'm going to go with Slytherin for him. I agree because he basically felt like Snape with a knife. It was, it was, well, yeah, exactly. Snape, you know, he, he was a grumpy old, you know. Cool. And you're talking about no line. He hid a cocaine habit yeah. and poorly, I might add, <laughs> to the extent that he had to be kidnapped and shanghaied away oh, that's, to Europe. That's true. That's true. And so this was the same kind of thing that like, I mean, hey, he's a good guy, you know, Snape. And, you know, RIP and everything. But dude was a Death Eater for sure. That's it for Mr. William Halstead. William he died Halstead. in 1922 of an infected, of an infected gallbladder as, as, okay. his mother, as he saved his mother from. Uh, he had his okay. own infected gallbladder. His own students attempted to transfuse their blood into him. But unlike his sister, he bled out. Oh, 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 that was a roller That's coaster. it for William Henry Halstead. Let's talk about it just all a right. Are, uh, are you going to take us all the way back to Baltimore? Did you want to hear about Baltimore? <laughs> I was actually going to take you over are, to Belgium, um, Are you going to take us all the way studied. back to Baltimore? Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, wait, have you been to did, Belgium? Did you want to hear about Baltimore? Right, let's, let's hear about Belgium. I can I can find yeah. out about Baltimore. Give me a moment. <laughs> uh, I I hear if you don't watch your ass, you're going to get cut there. That's about all I know. Well, in Bruges, 
there's a whole museum really? for French fries. Nestled among one of the, you know, the outdoor cafes with beer and waffles, which are amazing. Okay. Wait, wait. Are beer waffles, though, better or worse <laughs> than Stroop waffles? You're missing out, Holland. my friend. Oh, oh better nice. Better because they're beer waffles. Okay. But you go to the, to the Frick Museum, and you learn mm, all about okay. the glorious history of the fry, starting from Andean potatoes all the <laughs> way to of Belgium, you know, with an Inca-era vase and dioramas of Peruvian farmers and potato-peeling European soldiers. It's, it has a little fry cafe in the basement, so, and it's, <laughs> and it's open every day on, and only dude. costs like eight bucks. All right, well, at least you didn't say Irish. <laughs> so... That's it. I got nothing else for you. It was, you know, just a layover. That's it for this week. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from all our co-hosts. If you'd like to support spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with our Instagram and Twitter handles. So say hello, but be nice. (laughs) Our, Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, happy travels. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.